the bishop had oddly shaped feet. Tip of the tongue, the teeth, and the lips. I'm a slimy piece of rhubarb. <laughs> I've been eating a lot of rhubarb lately. Hello, and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadge Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I will reiterate, Ben and I are best buddies and automotive journalists. Isn't that cool? It's so cool. I know. Very rare, I think. Um, in fact, I want Ben to tell you, dear listener, where you can find his latest work. Ben, go for it. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as driving.ca, TechSpot, and Nouveau Magazine. Ben, we've got some new cars to talk about this week, and uh, you gave a teaser last week about what you're driving pretty thoroughly, so let's continue that conversation. You've got a BMW M3, right? That's right, and I'm not, I'm not going to hyper-focus on this car this week, because we talked so much, well, I mean, I guess I should, because I can't assume that people have listening have also heard last week's episode. But last week's episode was about the M4 competition, which is the two-door version of the M3 platform. But Sammy, there's a really big difference between the competition and the standard version of either the M3 or the M4, and that is the transmission. Uh, Hold on, wait, no, it can't be that big of a difference. You said it's only $3,000. And there's only, like, 10 more horsepower and 90 pound-feet of torque difference. No, no, it's, so it's a 30-horsepower difference and 70 pound-feet, 73 pound-feet of torque. So the base version of the M3 or the M4, you get 473 horsepower, 406 pound-feet of torque from a 3-liter three three, three twin-turbo engine. The competition gives you 503 horsepower and 479 pound-feet of torque, um, and it forces you into an automatic transmission. But what I want to mention is the six-speed manual is the only transmission available with the base M3 or M4. You can't get an automatic as an option. So the $3,000 you're spending on the competition gets you the automatic transmission plus the extra power. It includes the price of the automatic. Yes. That's Uh, pretty cool. So fine. And and a big part of that is because the in 2022, both the M3 and the M4 with the automatic will be offered with all-wheel drive. And we mentioned in the previous podcast, the automatic is a real automatic. It's not a d- dual-clutch system. This is an important distinction because in the past, BMW has, on the previous generation of the M3 and the M4, used a rather unfortunate DCT transmission. I believe it was a seven-speed. Uh, it had clunky behavior in normal driving especially at low low speeds like pulling away from a stop it just wasn't great uh, for an overall experience and i find that the zf transmission in the competition m3 and competition m4 that they have now with the torque converter is way better in every way and there's no real performance um penalty to pay for that okay so now you know there's gonna be some people who want a manual transmission bmw sports car and there is still that option right yeah i mean it's the standard transmission that comes with it. you get a six speed with a clutch uh this is what was outfitted to my tester it was a base m3 sedan i I mean base it it was a standard m3 sedan with a bunch of options so that means i had you know just under 500 horsepower instead of just over 500 horsepower putting the cars back to back in terms of speed yes i would say the m4 feels faster especially off the line because you have the extra torque there's also the fact that I really did not enjoy this manual transmission, Sammy, especially off the line. And I think that affected my overall impression of the car. So I'm concerned that you're not the Ben Hunting I know uh, and usually 
podcast with, what do you mean you didn't like the manual transmission? What's wrong with the manual transmission? So I am a fan of manual transmissions. Three quarters of the vehicles I own have manual transmissions, and they are of varying quality. <laughs> some of them are great. Some of them are passable, and some of them are okay now that I've put a lot of modification into them. So I'm familiar with the fact that having a manual doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Right. Uh, but on the modern landscape, if you're someone who likes shifting yourself, you are chasing after scraps because there's almost nothing in the performance world these days, especially the high-end performance world, that gives you a manual transmission. I mean, if you want to buy a Mustang, a Camaro, or a Challenger, you can get – can you get a manual Challenger? Not even – I don't think um, – oh, wait. Not... Uh, that's not true. You can still get a manual Challenger yeah. with the Scat Pack and with the Hellcat. I, I don't know what yeah. I'm saying. Um, you have to kind of get a muscle car. You have to get something like a front-wheel drive uh, hatchback, a hot hatch. You can get manuals with those. And Subaru offers it with the WRX and the STI. Like that's kind of your you know fun car conglomerate if you want to shift it yourself. But if you're okay. getting like a high-end performance car, almost none of them have it. The Corvette doesn't have it anymore. Almost none of the M cars have it except the M3 and the M4 at the base level. I don't think any of the Audis have it, uh, the RS cars. So Mercedes certainly doesn't offer it and Jaguar doesn't offer it. So it's, you know, Lexus, again, you can't get uh, an ISF or an RCF or whatever you want with a manual. Um, It's a really, really restricted segment of the market. So I think that we really canonize these transmissions in our mind and they can kind of do no wrong. I did not feel like the M3 transmission was all that great. I thought it was passable. It did the job. But the shift action on the transmission, it's not nearly as direct as I would have liked. It felt insulated. It felt a little rubbery. The shift paths weren't as direct as I would want. I guess I can't – am I saying direct too much? It's it, it felt like a transmission that does the job but not something that really pulled me into the driving experience, Sammy. That doesn't sound like a sports car transmission is basically what you're – what it sounds like you're saying because yeah. – you get these kind of like vague shifts out of something like, I don't know, a Corolla or something. Well, so, no, I'm not going to go that far. I don't think it was – but I will say there are some or great – <laughs> There are some great uh, compact car transmissions in the past that were fun to drive and, and okay. had good shift feel. I just feel like maybe it's a mismatch between the drivetrain and the transmission or maybe it's just BMW is planning to sell competitions and not so much – the manual cars, because I think pretty much America is the only part of the world that's still buying manual transmissions. Um, uh, Europe um, Europe is buying fewer and fewer as time goes on. And especially yeah. in the performance world, it's really the United States that's kind of driving those sales. So it does the job. It's, it's a little pokey feeling. Uh, it's not as smooth to pull off the line with. And, you know, again, people are probably listening to this and being like, oh, maybe Benjamin just doesn't know how to drive a manual transmission. I yeah, have, it's possible. No, it's, it's possible. It's possible, but I have – my Cadillac has a really terrible transmission for smoothness. The Tremec T56 in that car uh, was garbage from the factory. It had really bad shift bushings that were super squishy, um, and the shifter itself was so long and awkward that it was very difficult. You had to shift it like a truck almost. Um, I've done so many mods to that transmission to make it better. And I changed the clutch on the car too. It had a dual mass rotating flywheel, or sorry, dual mass flywheel that was really not designed to shift quickly. So I know how bad things can be. <laughs> right. I mean, there are there's a, a number of ways to kind of qualify uh, a a, tra- a transmission shift field. They can be 
notchy. They can be smooth. You can have that awful like butt bite point or, or engagement point of, yeah. the, of the clutch. Sometimes it's way too high, which is always awful, right? Yeah. And in, re- in regular driving, the M3 doesn't feel very smooth. I did not have the chance to flog this car as much as I did the M4 competition. Mm-hmm. I didn't have it on a racetrack. Maybe on a road course, um, I would be more into the engagement of the manual transmission. But between the M4 comp and the M3 standard, I felt like I had more fun with the M4 comp, with the automatic. You'd rather take you, – you're saying you'd rather take the extra power, the extra torque, and the automatic – The that, better transmission, I think. Yeah, and the better – the more functional transmission. Now, I want to point out I'm being consistent. Because when Jaguar came out with a manual version of the F-Type two or three years ago, I drove them both back-to-back. And the the gearbox in the manual F-Type is not that great. And you also lost a lot. For me, the F-Type was an experience, the audio experience of having the crazy exhaust sounds all the time on downshift. And it really sucks you in. I know every car does this now. But at the time, it was kind of semi-unique. Um, and you really miss that with the manual gearbox. You had to be shifting really, really high revs to get any kind of the same audio oral pleasure experience, as we like to call it on the show. Uh, or Oral pleasure explosion, I guess, is yeah. the term. But um, the, the, the M3, I feel it's a similar deal. It's like, it's perfectly acceptable. But if I was spending the money, I don't think I would get the manual version of the car. Or maybe I just need a lot longer to get used to it. Now, the other question I had was about this engine, because some engines make manual transmissions feel better as well. And if this is a, like a peaky, turbo, like laggy, turbocharger-style motor, it can probably suck to, with, a, with a manual transmission. I, and that could really lead to that weird I don't think it's. I don't think it's the engine, really. And I don't, really, I don't want to use the word suck. Like, I don't, this, it's not a bad drivetrain. It's just to my taste... Driving them back to back, the biggest difference between these two cars is the power and the transmission. Okay. And to, I was shocked by how much more I prefer the automatic. And maybe I'm getting old, I, <laughs> but I do own most of my cars are manual. So, like, it is my preference. Well, you're not getting any younger, Ben. No, definitely not. I hate not. to remind you. I'm Unless getting going to the Lazarus pit one more time. No, the Lazarus pit has dried up. It is just nothing but skeletons, Sammy. Skeletons and desiccated flesh. Um, tell me what else about this this um, M3. Does it, you know, the, the last model you drove, that M4 that you drove, had these really bonkers seats that were uh, a little over the top. Oof. And I was wondering if this M3 had the same seats in the front and the back. You know, No, these this M3 seats were perfect. They were really great. They were just as bright orange in color, pretty much. But they weren't, they didn't have like the really hardcore carbon fiber knobs and bumps and, and like squishy parts that like try to make your body fit in this tight mold. Uh, they do light up and say M3 on them, which is a little much for some people. What do you but mean light up? Like a pair of sneakers I had yeah, in high like, school? Or exactly like, like, exactly like that, Sammy. They're aiming for that sneaker demographic. Um, yeah, yeah it's, in the, it's in the headrest. There's like a, an illuminated logo. But oh I really God. like this. Can you imagine looking over into the, into the car next to you and their, the back of their head is illuminated with the M4 logo, uh, yeah. M3 logo? That's branding. Like, That's the next frontier. Forget Roblox. This is like the next frontier of branding. But uh, it's super comfortable. I really like them. Uh, another thing I want to point out is the back seat is really good in the M3. It's quite comfortable. And uh, we talked about the controversial grill that's on the M3 and the M4, the giant kidney snout that it has. I think it looks a lot better on the M3 than the M4. 
Part of that reason is it just looks visually shorter at the front end, which is totally an illusion, I know. But also, I had it in this kind of like bronzish color, and it gave more detail to the design. It really highlighted the design more so than the black on the M4, and it I think it allows you to see other parts of the car that distract you from how overbearing the grill is. That's um, that's a fair statement, I think. I think the design of the M3 just ends up making it look a little bit more, like, smoothed out, a little bit more, like, conservative, I guess. And yeah, well, I don't know. Real- conservative? I just, maybe it's a more cohesive design. I think it looked pretty good. Like, I wasn't super into the M4. I could take it or leave it. But the M3 kind of spoke to me. You mentioned the differences between the competition and non-competition version of these cars. Anything else, like... Those features you mentioned, like the there's a, like exhaust or something like there's that. There's larger wheels. You get yeah. um, a, an extra inch. They're staggered. I think it's 20 in the back, 19 in the front. And uh, you can get stuff like it, it, it's pretty much the same options list. So you can get like the, the driver's package to raise the speed. I, I think you can get the driver's package to raise the speed limiter to 180 miles an hour. Um, you can get this like drift evaluator analyzer thing that like lets you you know drift the car around and then it tells you whether you did a good drift or a bad drift. It's part of like a like a track package kind of data collection aspect of the car that you can pay more for if you want as an option. Um, okay. On the skid pad, obviously, that's where you're going to be. Yeah, doing totally on the skid pad. Such a feature. Definitely not in a mall parking lot in after the first snow of the season. No one would yeah. ever do that. Um, and also, again, to point out, if you get the manual, you can't get all-wheel drive, which is going to be the next thing for the M cars in 2022, which they should be arriving pretty soon because we're, we're almost at the in the fall season. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the M3 because we did talk a lot about the M4. Uh, but generally, the car itself, I like the platform. The manual transmission didn't make me like it more than the automatic. It's perfectly fine, but it wouldn't necessarily be my choice. I would have liked to have spent more time with it. I didn't get to drive it as much as the M4 just because somehow that's how ske- – sometimes that's how scheduling works. Yeah. But uh, overall, my impression of both cars, the M- the new M4 and the M3 on the new platform or the new design is positive. I think BMW is doing a good job. This is, a again, a grand touring car that's quite comfortable, looks decent, and it's reasonably priced at like 70000 It's like 1000 less than the M4. If you want the competition stuff, it's only three grand more. Uh, it's it's rare to see a BMW that is the best priced option, but I think that that might be the case. And also, um, compared to some other cars in the class, the interior is very nice, and you're, you're going to be quite comfortable just in daily driving. And that's not always the case, spending a lot of money on a super sedan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the other vehicles that compare with this don't come with manuals, right? Like, that's it. This no, is the only one. this is one. pretty much the only... Yeah, it's your only option. I, except for... And there's one exception, uh, and that's from Cadillac. So, I'd say, you know, this car yeah. compares against... If you want to compare it against the Cadillac, it's tough. Because the CT5V is really kind of more of a comparator for the M340, right? Yeah, so you have to compare it against this new Blackwing, which comes with the manual. Which has 668 horsepower. Holy moly, It's okay. a supercharged V8. So it's that's definitely class above. Even if you get the competition, it's still 150 horsepower more. Jeez. So I don't know. Like, does the CT5V, it's what, 400-something? Yeah. So that's uh, the same yeah. as a... Th- that's, that's 73 horsepower or 70 horsepower less than an M3? Yeah. It's weird. It's like there's this non... Once again, Cadillac has stepped out of 
um, the sports they're sedan competition. Yeah, yeah, they're not they're not like in the same template as maybe some other cars. So you know, what are you going to do? Um, I mentioned last week. You know, I was curious as to whether or not these cars feel like enthusiast cars. I think a lot of people were excited when they heard the news that the M3 and M4 will come with a manual transmission. And now, are you t- telling? Are you basically telling listeners to temper their expectations? I'm saying definitely drive it before you order yeah. it and see if you can live with it on a regular basis and see how you feel about the uh, shift experience. Um, it's it's not comparable to past BMW manuals. I mean, BMW has, for the last 20 years, doesn't have a reputation of building, you know, it, it, it's really hard to to say. Like I, I, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you know, we're fighting for scraps at this point if you want a manual gearbox. And to criticize a manual gearbox when you've been given one kind of feels like biting the hand that's trying to feed you. Right. Uh, I, again, not a terrible transmission, not a bad transmission, just not something that really pulled me into the driving experience. I think you're being picky, but I think you have to be picky as well when you're spending. I mean, it's not, this is not, there's a choice here. At the if beginning want, of every episode, Sammy, you tell me, be as picky as possible. I know, I do. I, it's, uh, we have a little creed, a little podcasting creed, unnamed automotive podcast creed that starts off with, with be as picky as possible. Thou shalt be picky. Um, but I think, you know, I truly think that the, the enthusiast market wants a manual super sedan. That's clearly why there's this one and the Cadillac CT5 Blackwing, which are both fairly new entries in the, in the segment. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see how this, how this pans out. So you mentioned that, uh, you drove a vehicle that we've talked about in the past, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the recent past, but you did something very different than what I did with it. And what is this car and how did you drive it? Where did you drive it? What is the story? I drove the Mustang, the Ford Mustang Mach E. Um, this is the premium model, not the high horsepower, uh, GT model. And I ended up, uh, extending my, my, my commutes out of town. I went all the way to a friend's cottage which was something like 170 miles away. And um, I put the, I kind of put that range to the limit. So what is the, what is the range on the Maki, the version so, that you drove? I believe the range is uh, 290 miles or so. That's what my car was telling me every time I topped it up with a full charge, 100%. Uh, it told me I had about 290 miles of, of range, which is pretty... It's pretty good, I think. I mean, yeah, that should um, take you to the cottage, right? In theory. It should. I mean, that would get me to the cottage, but not all the way back, which is a concern. And um, I did notice that I wanted that in my – en route was a, uh, a charging station that um, provided these really fast um, charge rates. They, the Mach-E can support up to 150 kilowatt charging, which is like the second fastest uh, of most cars. I believe – Nowadays, there are cars that can do 350 kilowatt charging. Hey, it's not a race, isn't it? They're trying. They're trying their best, is what I'm saying. And uh, the Mustang can do 150. I'm used to using 50 kilowatt chargers where I live uh, when I need to get around. And um, I was looking forward to using one of these high these high speed ones, so I can just take about half an hour to top my car back up to about 80 percent, get get to the cottage, and then come back on one charge um, on my way back. However, my experience turned out to be far more frustrating than I could have imagined, which was I made it to this charger and um, both charging stations were were out of order. And it, it didn't tell you that in advance? Um, I didn't check in advance. Oh, 
Okay. Um, the truth comes out. I didn't check in advance. I had seen – I made this cottage trip a number of times over my uh, – over the past few years. Uh, actually, I've been going since I was 13, so I've been seeing this since this, – this, you know, this rest stop since I was 13 – um, and over the past few years, they've added this charging station. I've always seen it available. I've never seen this paper on top of it that said out of order. Um, and uh, my my friend who was there before me didn't mention that either. So I was just going on it and, and hoping. You know, I, hope is not a strategy, Sammy. I know. I should be paying more attention to all of these apps that are that are available that allow you to check on the statuses of these charging stations. But I have to add, this is super frustrating. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I have – let me look at my phone – uh, seven. I have seven charging apps on my phone. Okay. First of all, I shouldn't have to verify whether basic in- infrastructure works <laughs> before That's I right. set off on a, on a road trip. This is – if you have a gas vehicle, it's very rare that you pull up at a gas station that is completely inoperative, right? Like there's right. always at least a few pumps that are working. And if if everything is broken, there's always another gas station within driving distance. And I'm saying okay. in general, right? Not everywhere there are, you know, I grew up in areas with no gas stations. I understand that. But um, for electric cars, this doesn't seem to be the case. So I will say my trip got sorted out. I, I did find another charging station um, less than 15 minutes away, which I think is a really reasonable. Uh, I didn't just find one charging station. I found three uh, different networks of fast chargers they weren't the super fast 150 kilowatt chargers they were the 50 ones so i had to extend my stay by about uh an extra 30 minutes or so but i ended up topping the vehicle up and continuing on my way with an extra hour um difference which i think is that's not a great experience but it could have been worse right and and this it's also important to point out there's a bunch of weird stuff when it comes to charging an ev like yeah once you get to 80 percent, charging really slows down yeah, this bothers me a lot. Um, this bothers me a whole lot because you hear this advertised range of like 300 miles. This is going to be great. Um, but that's only when the vehicle is at 100%. And if you're going on a road trip, you're going on, a, on an extended road trip where you have to make multiple charging stops, you also have to know what your 80% charge rate is. Because it seems like you get the car from like, let's say from zero to 80 in about an hour. Let's say that. Um, but to get from 80 to 100, the charge rate slows so dramatically that it's almost it, – it logistically, should, you shouldn't have to do this. It goes from 150 in these fast chargers to fit from 50 in these other chargers that I use to 12. And the you reason end up taking another maybe two hours to get from 80 to 100, which is insane. And the reason this happens is because um, car companies are trying to protect their batteries and you have to manage heat. You have to manage energy absorption, all this stuff, the chemistry of the batteries, et cetera, et cetera. If you charge the last 20% of a battery too quickly, you damage it. Yeah. And once it's damaged, it's you know, you drop those cells and you can't store energy in them anymore. So this is like – the dark underbelly. I don't always say dark underbelly. It sounds really dramatic. This is an aspect of EV ownership that's not really advertised as much. Everyone who owns an EV is aware of this. Yeah, but and it, and and most EV owners have a charger at home that goes to 100, like a level two charger or a level one, like just plug it into the wall, and they'll charge it into 100 from zero to 100 there. That's no problem. That should work fine for them. But if you're going on these road trips, which I was intending to do, you have to be aware of a whole other metric. This what your car's range is. At 80%, right? Yeah, it, it really changes your planning. 
I mean, so weird. You combine that with the uncertainty associated with charging stations. I mean, for you, you were able to find another station, but you, it was you know a third the speed. So that changes your whole day. And yeah. this is what's people who are relying on electric vehicles right now. This is what they face. You cannot accurately plan a trip and give someone a definite answer for an arrival time. And that's yeah. – it's not a situation that's really improving either because it kind of feels like a lot of municipalities, uh, they just install a charging station and then they walk away from it and never <laughs> think about it ever again. <laughs> yes. So I think you've had this – I mean you've had really sketchy charging experiences where cars get disconnected from the charger or they don't start charging or something like that. Or they're charging and you don't know that they're charging. So you just yes. have to guess and like hope that when you come so, out of the store, it's actually got something in the battery. This is in, a, in Canada's second largest city I've had these problems. And I've seen this as well. I've gone to a charger that just was like as if it wasn't turned on. Uh, it just didn't do anything limp. And uh, you, some people call – um, the the charging provider, the charger provider. Well, I contact so I call, them and nothing happens. Yeah, I contact. I tried to contact them for this fast charger that I, I couldn't use, and I got put on hold for about let's say ten minutes. Um, no, no answer. Just simply no answer. <laughs> How awful is that, right? And then I also have to add one more thing. The charger I found, I, I found was at a brewery, which is mixed messaging. I've got to add, um, and the charger was next to the garbage, which. Which was so really, many hornets really bad it stank there were a lot of bees um i have to add that the charge was free which is fortunate but i didn't enjoy the entire experience i also have to add now i was up in cottage country and the cell network coverage that i have there was not very good so i arrived at this charger which used a different app that i had i had to download this app which took forever like a little bit longer than I was used to. It slows down at eighty percent of the download. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't want to. It doesn't want to damage my storage. Overheat my your cell phone. And it couldn't like the 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 radio. Uh, sorry, the the GPS signal couldn't really find this this charger that I was at because it was never accurate enough. So I ended up having to walk to the brewery, use their Wi-Fi, initiate the charging from there, and then walk and hang it in the car like that. It, that was not a great experience altogether. That's insane. And nobody should have to be put through this. And this is just um, one, like, one charging station in one part of the country. Yeah. Multiply that by a thousand and you have all these yeah. different weird charging station stories. And a reason I'm bringing this up is because there are not a thousand different gas station stories. You pull up to a gas station, you know what's going to happen. Maybe it's an old mechanical pump. Maybe it's a digital one. That's the only difference, right? Yeah. Like there's no there's no like all sorts of strange apps you have to use. There's no different contracts you have to use, you have to have with the fuel company in order to get the fuel that you need. It's you don't have to have your cell phone working. It's <sighs> not to mention you like I asked, I I can't just add my credit card to these apps and just say like pay for the charge. I have to add money to the app, so like a wallet and then use that wallet to pay for the charge. So now I have, I told you, I have seven charging apps. I think I have three of them with like varying levels of money in the wallet. It's like gift cards so you're never going to use again, yeah. right? Like, so stupid. So I have to admit, there are there are things. I don't know if anybody's ever spoken about this. Maybe I'm. I feel. I, I feel like it's not mentioned frequently enough that the charging experience, uh, the public charging experience, can be really frustrating. Um, I understand charging at home can be pretty good. And most of the time in my past two years using fast chargers, 
um, are in and around town, I'd say within a, let's say a 75 mile radius of, of where I live, I found it to be okay. But once I, I really had to push things, I really had to try to go somewhere further than usual, I got real weirded out as to how this is going to work. So my, my drive back home was a little bit more uh, mundane. I used a, uh, they call them Electrify Canada chargers here. Uh, they're known as Electrify America in the U.S., obviously. This is a division that has been paid for with the Dieselgate money of, from Volkswagen, which is pretty interesting. And um, you can initiate charging with this with a tap of your, your credit card. Um, but this one, this was a 150 kilowatt hour, I mean, 150 kilowatt charging speed and it worked pretty nicely. Um, and it wasn't next to the garbage, which was nice. I didn't have to use, um, I didn't have to download an extra app or connect to some GPS that cannot find me or anything like that. So that ended up working out pretty nicely. My other initial, my other impressions is that this, uh, Mustang Mach-E, you, you seemed kind of like, uh, you were kind of average on it, I think. You didn't you didn't sway too high or too low on it. You thought it was it was just okay. Yeah, it felt like a very normal car, which is I think what you want from an EV. I I am a little bit more positive on it. Um, I felt that it was cool. I thought it was spacious. Um, I thought it, it had more than enough range than I needed, uh, with the exception of that cottage trip. And uh, it has a ton of performance. I also found that the range estimate that it kept giving me was very accurate. Um, every time um, I drove it, it would uh, it would tick down the, the the mileage as needed. It never, you know, there were no phantom, you know, miles I couldn't account for. They were just gone from the range when I was like, I only traveled this much. Um, and uh, this was in a very hot. I think we had heat warnings here. Uh, even when I turned on the air conditioning, the car totally saw what I, what was going on. It estimated what was going to be the future range of the vehicle and took took it all for into its uh, into its calculation, which I thought was pretty good. Um, the only time range really disappears is when you want to show up the acceleration, which is very quick, I have to add. And I didn't even have, like I said, I didn't have that GT model. But you did have those three strange drive modes, right? I did. Those really vague drive modes. It's like unbridled. And, oh, I can't remember them. I they think one is no- called, like, Calm or something. Yeah. Yeah. Really odd. I didn't really understand what they were all about. I just used the normal one, and I hit the throttle, and my head bounced off the headrest, and I was like, they need, <laughs> they need softer headrest, I think. <laughs> but um, overall, I, I was fairly impressed with it, and uh, I just think that the infrastructure needs to be improved. Now, some news in the, in the recent um, – this is an awful way to say it – there has been some recent news about Tesla. They've been considering opening up their supercharging network to um, the rest of the, the world. So that currently um, only Tesla owners can use supercharging, which, you know, is, is a way to, to block people into a platform, right? For sure. And now there has been some government incentives. They want um, people to help fund for the electric uh, vehicle infrastructure so long as it's an open standard. And... Well, now Tesla is now interested in opening up the superchargers for everyone else. I don't know how they're going to do it because there are a couple of things that are unique to the um, supercharging network. First of all, the, I believe the plugs are a different shape or size than, than other ones. I also and, think don't, – don't you get it for free? No, you don't. But the, you do have to register your – I believe you have to register your Tesla. And when you plug it in, it recognizes who you are and it charges it or it knows your credit okay. and can, can do it. How does that does that mean I'm going to need an eighth app, a Tesla charging? Oh app? yeah, definitely. 
So this is going to be another great situation I'm going to put myself into. And but, also, like, if you're someone like us who's changing EVs on a regular basis, I don't know how it's going to, you know, like, oh, yeah. if, I who's that remove, car registered to? If you're yeah, renting an EV. I have to remove cars from this, uh, from my little, like, I have a charge point one. I'm like, no, I don't have that. I don't have that Wrangler 4xE. Sorry. I have something else now this week. So it's so funny that you're just like, buy this car. I have another one. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that comes to fruition and what that what that's like. Um, I'm I'm hesitant. I don't think it'll be a smooth experience, but you never know. So anything else that you want to uh, throw in about the um, Maki before we sign sign off? No, I don't think so. Is there anything that? Oh, that giant touchscreen. Yes. That is not a way. That is not a way to use the the vehicle. The the touchscreen is just not super intuitive. I'm. I was not, I just didn't like it, you know, changing climate speeds or climate conditions or fan speeds um, was not easy. Uh, There were a couple of times when the Android Auto, the wireless Android Auto didn't like work as expected. And then additionally, it has this really weird looking, I mean, not weird. It's a rectangular gauge cluster that looks super cheap and doesn't provide, provide enough information. Like it didn't tell me like media information or anything like that. And that was really frustrating too. Yeah, I agree. But that's it. I think uh, overall, I think they've made a pretty good uh, long-range EV. Um, and for their first go at you know a more mainstream product than their old Ford Focus Electric, which was more of a compliance vehicle, um, I think Ford can show that they know what they're doing. And now I'm kind of interested in seeing how the um, F-150 Lightning will be. So if uh, any of you out there are interested in our past takes on uh, electric vehicles uh, or what we said the last time we talked about the Mach-E or uh, if you're curious about the M4 competition compared to the M3 that we talked about today, you can find our past episodes on unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. They are all there listed waiting for you to enjoy. You can also subscribe using your... um, any podcatcher, really. You can do it on the website itself or you can listen to past episodes at Amazon, Google, uh, Apple... Uh, Spotify, uh, Shoutcast. I think we're everywhere, Sammy, aren't we? (laughs) I think so. If you search for us, you'll find us, I'm sure. If you are able to leave a review or just like like us or or follow us or whatever that particular podcatcher lets you do that really helps us get in front of a wider audience. So um, any kind of activity in that way is very much appreciated. Um, Additionally, you can get in touch with us. Did we mention that? No, we did not. You can get in touch with us. Sorry, I blanked out. I blacked out for a moment. That's totally cool. When you Take say shoutbox, sometimes I just pass out. <laughs> um, uh, you can get in touch with us very easily. You head on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You click the contact button. You fill out the form. You hit submit, and it lands in our inbox. Can you imagine? It's that technology, man. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's far more reliable than these char- these EV chargers, I've got to say. Um, additionally, you can get in touch with us the old-fashioned way with a two-line in your email. You just hit... Uh, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram where you can find our social media feeds. You can find Ben. He's on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha like you're laughing. And if you want to send a little something something our way, you can do that at ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash unnamed automotive podcast or there is a link in the show notes and we appreciate everyone who has been contributing. Thank you very much. Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? Next week, I'm going to be testing the, I mean, far less exciting, but a big deal, the new Honda Civic. All right. And I am going to be talking about the Alfa Romeo 
Julia Quadrifoglio. Very cool. I can't wait. Bye, everybody. Bye.